0: Good afternoon. My name is Tanya, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Mona. I hope I can live up to that in some small measure. Uh, good Lord. Okay, I'll see if we can settle down here. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting us. Um, I don't think we've ever been better treated at a convention than we have been here. Uh, really and truly, everything has been just wonderful. And uh, not only has the committee been great to us, but the hotel staff has been lovely. And uh, and the city has been friendly and it's uh it's been a nice visit. Uh take me a minute to settle down here. I get a little nervous before I speak in front of a group this size. Um, so you won't have to sort of figure it out as we go along. I'll tell you that on my last birthday, which was April seventeenth, I was forty seven years old and twenty four years sober. And uh I wanna well The 47 is almost as astonishing to me <laughs> as the 24. Um, but if you had told me when I got here that that would have happened, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, I didn't plan to live beyond the age of 30, and if I'd continue to drink, of course, I probably wouldn't have. I um, I come from a long line of alcoholics. When they talk about alcoholism as a family disease, uh, it was a little different in my family than they talk about and on. Um My mother's father died of alcoholism. And my father's mother died of alcoholism. Uh, my mother just celebrated 30 years on this program. Uh, I have a brother who just celebrated seven years on this program. Um, my father came to Alcoholics Anonymous for a while. He, uh, he went out for a drunk walk and got hit by a car. And when he got out of the hospital, he thought he might need AA. And so he came to uh, some meetings, and he stayed sober for almost a year. And, and then he realized that he'd been a little precipitous. And uh, so he's going back out and he's doing a little social drinking again. Um, at our last family function, he was having a little social drink out of the trunk of his car. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, in all fairness to him, uh we were at one of my husband's non-alcoholic relatives uh, from this particular function, and uh, they were serving booze, sort of. Uh, actually what they had is they had this one lousy bottle of white wine and these little chicken shit glasses. I mean, <laughs> why bother? Uh <laughs> But, uh, you know, but it it always reminded me of a story. A friend of mine got sober at the same time I did, and she was in a grocery store, and some woman just walked up to her in the aisle, and she said, What kind of glasses do you use to serve wine? And he said, I favor a 12-ounce water glass. (laughs) And the woman said, So do I, but I'm having company. (laughs) We do find each other, you know. I never wanted to be a social drinker. I didn't know that uh, until I got sober. I always thought I wanted to be a social drinker. And then I found out what a social drinker did. Um see, cause I never wanted not, I, I always wanted to get drunk. I never had any intention of, get, of going out there and drinking and coming home sober. Uh, my intention was just not to get quite that drunk. You know, I was, it was, I really had not intended to make that kind of a fool out of myself was really what it was about. But I always wanted to feel it. Uh, that's why I drank. I used to say that I drank because I was shy and self-conscious, and, and I didn't know how to talk to people, and, and I was afraid of boys, and I and I didn't know how to dance, and I was socially inept. And, and then when I drank, I could do all the things that I couldn't do when I was sober, and that's not really true. When I drank, nothing changed. I just didn't give a shot. Uh, when I drank, I was enough. And so that's why I drank. I drank because it made me feel like I was enough and uh, and I only felt like I was enough when I drank. but I, you know right from the beginning i my my drinking career um is a dull one, really. but you know, I will tell you about the first time I got drunk uh because it sort of covers the territory. I went to a party and someone said to me, "Would you like a drink?" And I said, "Make mine a week when I don't really drink." That's the last time I ever said that. um Anyhow, they poured me a drink. It was about 8 o'clock. There was an invisible line that I crossed uh, from social drinking. It happened in about 30 minutes. Uh Because by 8.30, I was hanging on to things because I wasn't too steady on my feet. Uh, by the end of the evening, I had left with somebody else's date. Um, I threw up. I blacked out. And I did things for which I was ashamed the next day. Nothing much changed. Um, and that really kind of sums up my drinking. I really do think of my drinking as a long series of throwing up out of car windows, you know. I was a real fun date. Um, I was the one who was hanging over the toilet bowl at 9 o'clock, you know. Um, I overshot the mark so early in the evening. And people were always trying to help me. They'd say to me things like, slow down, you know. Um, I tried. Um I I um before I ever had my first drink, it seemed so unfair. You know, my mother was a member of AA. I'd been to AA meetings, I'd read the big book on alcoholism, I'd read Morty Mann's Primer on alcoholism. I knew a lot of stuff about really it was almost like having thirty days of sobriety and going back out. It seemed so unfair. Um but the one thing I remembered in all of my reading was in Marty Mann's primer on alcoholism it said that most alcoholics have a great capacity, and I hung on to that. I thought ha, I'm not an alcoholic, uh clearly because I don't have that capacity i um from the first time I drank, people told me I didn't drink well. I thought, give me a chance um i i um I went to psychiatrists and I joined churches when I was drinking uh and i i wasn't looking for a solution i was looking for something to fix me and i certainly was not looking for an opportunity to quit drinking i say i went to psychiatrists i did not try therapy um i just went to lots of psychiatrists i um one of the difficulties with psychiatry was that i was not willing to talk about anything too personal um <laughs> I didn't think it was any of their business, and in addition, I wanted them to like me, and I felt if I got too honest that they wouldn't. In addition, they asked questions that I couldn't answer. Um, They said, you know, they used to say things like, and how did you feel when that happened? Well, how would I know? I didn't have a label for those things. I didn't have labels for those things until I got sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, and my sponsor told me what they were. So I didn't know. So I didn't get a lot of help from therapy. I went to a psychiatrist, one psychiatrist that I liked, and and, uh, I liked her because she told me that I was not an alcoholic, that I didn't have to concern myself with that, that my problem was the kind of people I was hanging out with, and I liked her. And I continued to see her until she told me I had to stop blaming my mother for all my problems, and then I thought, who needs her? Um I felt sleazy when I drank and the longer I drank the sleazier I felt and I wanted to be a nice woman I really did Um and, and it occurred to me that I you know I I believe that, that nice women like children and so uh I had a girl scout troop when I drank Uh I got sober and discovered I don't like children and groups of children make me very nervous. <laughs> I worked at the state children's home in Denver. I was in school and I was drinking. Uh, I worked with delinquent and disturbed children. The reason you could tell me apart from the kids is I carried a set of keys. <laughs> I remember this child walking into my office one day and she was about 16 and she threw herself down the chair across from me and she said, what am I going to do with my life? And I thought, I don't know. You know. I didn't have an answer. I didn't know what I was going to do with mine. Um, they fired me from that job. Well, I, I, I tried to commit suicide and they told me it was, it indicated I was unstable. the truth of the matter was, you know, we, I talk about it. I say commit try and commit suicide. The truth is I, I didn't really want to die. I just wanted to change the subject. <laughs> Things had gotten very hot. Anyhow, um, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the first time when I was 21 years old. I was not an alcoholic. I was a victim of circumstances. Um, you know, and, and if you'd had the problems I did, you'd have you'd drunk, too. I um I have a little problem with pills as well. Um, when I got here I didn't have a pill problem. Um and I'll explain why. I took amphetamines. Um, it was what I liked. Uh if I had a choice I took uh dexamil. I understand they don't make dexamil anymore. That makes me very sad. Um I you know and people used to say things like they make me nervous. I never quite understood that. When my jaw was so tight that it felt like it would break if I moved it, I was happy. <laughs> I liked standing at attention. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and I so I took a lot of Dexamel. Uh, but I explained to myself and to you that I did not have a pill problem because you see, I took pills, um, because I needed them to study because I wasn't too well organized. Um. But, you know, the truth of the matter is that um, after a while, it just seemed like a shame to waste all that good time studying once I took the pills. So I didn't get a whole lot done. And the other thing was that I told you that I didn't take pills off the street like a common drug addict. You know, I, uh, I had a, my source was this kid whose father was a psychiatrist. And his father used to give him samples, and he sold them for pocket money. And uh, so most of the time I got them right from the pharmaceutical house. So I didn't take garbage off the street unless I couldn't get the good stuff. And then I'd take anything. And I used to say I didn't steal. And the truth is that, well, I didn't if you would sell them to me. Um, (laughs) But if you wouldn't sell them to me, I took them from you. I needed them. And that seemed fair. Um, Anyhow, I was 21 years old. I had a lot of bad checks out. Um, nobody was speaking to me. I'd been fired from my job. I'd been thrown out of school. I didn't have any place to live. And so, like any good alcoholic, I called mother and went home. Um, and it was a little awkward because mother was sober and AA and father was drinking. And, uh, and so, and I was drinking. And, uh, and my mother resented my drinking and my father resented my cutting into his stash. Um... So, and and I, you know, and I I was not an alcoholic, but I couldn't stay sober. And so each day, you know, I would, I would, every night I would say to myself, tomorrow I'm not going to drink. Tomorrow I'm going to sober up, and I'm going to get my life straightened out, and I'm going to go out and get a job, and I'm going to get this mess cleaned up, and everything's going to be fine. And and I had that intention, and when I went to bed each night, I really did have that intention. The next day, I was going to clean up my act. And, uh... And every single day, um, you know, by five o'clock I was drunk again. And um and I anyhow, I've been around Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew you could sober up here, and I knew I wasn't really an alcoholic, but I decided I would come off to, come on to AA anyhow and and just get sober and clean up my life. And uh, oh, thank you. Uh and then I could go back out and drink socially again. And uh, and so I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh and but because I wasn't an alcoholic, I felt it unnecessary to work any of the steps. And uh, I did not believe in God. I told you I joined churches a lot, I knew that didn't work. So but my concession to you was that I didn't discuss it with you. And uh and I didn't I didn't speak at podiums because it made me nervous. Um but I didn't drink and I went to a lot of meetings and uh and I got a lot of attention. Now I, my first sponsor uh was a woman named Beverly and and, and um you know when I came to you I, I wouldn't have admitted it even to myself, let alone to you. Uh but I was terribly lonely and I was terribly frightened and I covered it with a lot of hostility and a lot of arrogance. Um but I followed this woman around and and I remember uh going to her house one time and she had four year old twins, little twins, and and uh I remember this little girl, Jeannie, saying to her, "Mommy, why did we bring Tanya home?" And Beverly said, "Because we love her." And you know, that's why I stayed here, because it had been a very long time since I felt loved, and uh, and I really believe that woman loved me, and uh, loved me in spite of the fact that I was a total pain in the butt. Um, anyhow, but I stayed around this program, and I remember there was one guy that used to drive me crazy. He was this newcomer, and um. Uh, and and it God he was enthusiastic. I mean it just wanted to make you sick sick your stomach. He was always talking about how grateful he was, and he was always smiling and, and he stood at the door and he was greeting people, and, you know, and he remembered people's names and I thought, Jesus, I gotta get away from this guy. I stopped going to meetings where I thought I'd see him, he just made me nervous. And then but as I began to, to stay around here, I started looking around and I and I was coming up I, on a year of sobriety and um And I started looking around, and I looked at the women that I'd been talking to, and it occurred to me that um, these women really didn't have it all together. They were pretty sick. (laughs) And I began to wonder why it was that I was talking to them under the circumstances. I mean, how could you really give me any advice when clearly your own life was in shambles? And uh, And so I quit talking to you. I continued to come to meetings, but I quit talking to you. And, uh, and finally I was down to one person I was still talking to. It was this slipper, uh, that I was living with. I was going to make him into the man he'd always wanted to be. And, uh, when he got drunk, I got with him to know, I got drunk with him, uh, to no one's surprise but my own. And, uh, and I remember going out that night to have a drink, and it wasn't a slip, it was a planned drunk. And, uh, and I remember going out to, uh, have that drink, and I thought to myself, well, it's no big deal. Uh, if this doesn't work, I can always go back to AA. When, by the time I'd finished that first drink, I knew I wanted to be you know, back in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I couldn't—I um, couldn't get back. Um And I cried. Uh, I kept coming back, and I kept changing my state of sobriety. And I came in and out of these meetings. Um, God, I wanted to be sober. And, and i couldn't and I couldn't get it, and I kept getting drunk and uh and I thought, finally, maybe I'm one of those people who's never going to be able to make this program and It was very scary um but I was one of those people who never played by the rules. the rules never applied to me um I was one of those people who demanded certain conditions all of the time and uh and when I got back here the last time. It was necessary for me to be surrendered, and uh, and I, I believe that, that it was the only way I was going to make this program. When I got back to you this time, and it was sometime time, I, I used my natal birthday, because I know I didn't drink after my natal birthday, but I don't know the exact date that I stopped drinking, because uh, I was in and out so much. Um, but I, I chose my natal birthday, but when I got back to you this last time, I was surrendered. Um, I was... I was willing to do whatever I was told, and I was willing to do it your way. Um, I had no conditions left. It was no longer necessary for me to have that job, that car, those clothes, that man, that apartment. None of those things were important. When I got back to you, I did not have to have happy sobriety, and in the beginning, I didn't. In the beginning, I sat on my hands, and I did not want to stay in meetings. And I stayed because I had made a commitment to stay here, and I wanted to be sober, and I didn't care what the terms were, and I was willing to do whatever my sponsor told me to do. I would like to tell you that I have maintained that level of willingness from that day forward, but it would be a lie. Um, But what I do want to tell you is that when I might get my back against the wall today, that I still get back to that same willingness. I'm still willing to do whatever is necessary for me to stay sober. This is the most important thing in my life. I would like to tell you that I'd also gave up all of my character defects. Um, we had a fellow out in the, on the west coast who used to say, it's not a newcomer's problems that scare me, it's their solutions. <laughs> when I got sober, I got sober at the 202 Club in Pasadena, which is kind of a place where you can, Pasadena, California, Uh it's a place where you can uh, associate with lower companions and still stay sober. Um, Anyhow, but I decided that one of my problems had been that I had a hard time supporting myself, and my solution to that was I decided to get married now I didn't have anybody in particular in mind. you understand I just thought it was a good idea to get married, so I looked around the two o two club and there wasn't a lot of uh real marriage material there uh, but I finally well, set on somebody i uh i I spotted this guy and uh he was sober, and he was employed, which was real important um, and um uh, And I used to say he was single um The reality was that he'd been separated for many years from his wife, so I helped him get a divorce and uh and then I courted him briefly, and then I asked him to marry me. He was a newcomer; he didn't know any better,
1: <laughs>
0: so we got married. It was a marriage made in hell. You
1: know,
0: I, have a, I have a baby, and, and she came over. She was talking about some new girl that she was working with, and she said, she's got 20 years, and she had this new baby, and she said, you know, she's she gotten involved with this guy. I said to her, Rhonda, I got married when I was four months sober, and you met your husband in the nut house. <laughs> we don't have anything to say to this girl except get to lots of meetings, you know. Anyhow, we got married and we moved from Pasadena up to a place called Ventura, California. And, uh, and I, I was smart enough to get myself a sponsor. And, uh, there's a, this woman was a martinet. Uh, she didn't understand a sensitive soul like me, but I knew I needed her. And, uh, she, uh, she came from a background of, of, um, hardcore AA. And uh, for which I am very grateful. Anyhow, Uh I liked her very much, but she had a couple of, of uh habits that, uh, that I found disconcerting. And one of them was that the woman couldn't keep her hands to herself. And she was always hugging you or patting you. or You know, and she just didn't seem to understand that, that I didn't approve of that sort of thing. I didn't like to be touched. Um, and the truth of the matter is that she understood perfectly and she didn't care. Uh... Because she understood it was part of the healing process here. And the other thing is that she wanted to talk about stuff personal. And, uh, you know, I didn't trust anybody when I got here. Uh, but it seemed to be necessary to keep her off my back, and so I began to share just a little bit of, with her. And, uh, and it was okay. And so I continued to share. And, uh, and pretty soon the time came when she knew as much about me as I knew about myself. I no longer had any secrets, all of the things that I was going to take to my grave, I'd shared with my sponsor, and it set me free. My sponsor said unkind things. She said things like the steps are numbered for the intellectual. Tanya. Take them in order. And, uh, but I did. I said to her, Georgie, I I don't believe in God. She said, it's okay, honey. If you will but believe that I believe in God, that's enough. And so I believed in Georgie's God. And I want to tell you that I believe in George's God for the first five years of my sobriety. And the reason I tell you that is that I hear people come into Alcoholics Anonymous and they say, I got drunk because I couldn't find God. You get drunk because you drink. If you stay here, you will find God. And sometimes it takes five years and sometimes it takes 15. And it doesn't matter if you are willing. Um, and it took me until I was almost five years sober to have a God of my own, and it was okay. I... um by the time I uh was about ready to to um uh, take the third step one more time and uh and, and find a God of my own, things were not going well in my life. Um this marriage was beginning to disintegrate around me. And uh you know and I and I hadn't been very good at supporting myself when I was uh alone and I now had a three year old to support as well and it was very scary. And uh and this this man that I was married to got drunk. And, uh, and that was very scary. And, uh, and you know, I don't know about you, but if I have any solutions left, I'll try them, but i would really run out of solutions in this case, because you see, here I was with this three-year-old, and I didn't have a job, and, uh, and I didn't have a place to live, and, uh, and I didn't have any money, and, uh, and I didn't know what we were going to do. And somebody said to me, you know, and this man was drunk and running around behaving like somebody who was drunk, and, um somebody said to me, what are you gonna do? I said, I don't know, I'm gonna turn it over to God. And I'm here to tell you that God understands the housing problem. That he understands the child care problem. Um, and that he took care of us. And that things fell into place. I went back to school while I was married. And I was still in school when we were getting our divorce. And I finished school uh, and got my bachelor's degree uh during that time. And uh, and that man paid uh, spousal support. And he paid child support. And he paid it in full on time every month because he was coming back and uh, he didn't want to have too many minutes to make, I guess anyhow, it didn't take him too long to get back and get sober and I'm grateful because my son deserves a sober father and he has one Um, when I finished school I went out and I got the best job I'd ever had in my life Um, and I supported that little boy and myself And, uh, and I did a good job I'm a good employee today and I didn't get to you knowing how to be a good employee. I didn't get to you knowing how to be a good anything. Uh, I got to you when I was young, and I was terribly immature, and I really wasn't safe to send out on the street alone. Um, but I learned here, and uh, my sponsor uh believed in being active and she believed in being involved. In addition to working those steps she believed that we were that we had to contribute here. She said that if you want to stay you're gonna have to make a contribution. This is not a free ride. And uh and she she believed in being active and so I did all of the things that uh that she she recommended and we didn't discuss it. Um I liked our first speaker on Friday night. Uh we didn't we didn't discuss whether we wanted to do these things or not. We just simply did them because that's how it was with her. I said to her, Georgie I'm I'm shy and self conscious and she said, Tanya, it's selfish and self obsessed. And I thought that was terribly unkind. But the truth is I can't do anything about shy and self conscious, but I can do something about selfish and self obsessed. And uh and so I got involved and, and I uh, I set up meetings and I made coffee and I brought the cake and I brought the cookies and uh and I set out ashtrays and I washed cups back in the days when we had cups. Um and I washed ashtrays and uh and I tore down meetings and stacked chairs and uh and I brought the literature and I picked up newcomers and uh and when I got sober long enough i, I got to be secretary of a meeting and uh secretary of that particular meeting it was a little discussion meeting meant that I got to get there early and open up and set up the meeting and make the coffee and bring the cookies and uh and the literature and uh And then when everybody arrived, I got to pick the leader and then when the, the meeting was over, fortunately, I was not the treasurer that's the only job they didn't give me uh <laughs> I didn't handle money well, uh then I got to clean up the meeting and wash out the coffee pots and put the chairs away and lock up That was the secretary's job at that meeting and uh and that was very important for me i i, I um I'm still active today i uh i'm uh, I'm on the cleanup crew at my regular home group on Friday night, and a couple of people and I got together and started a wednesday night meeting and and uh that means that I get to get the speakers, and it also means I get to get there early to set up the meeting and make the coffee, and then I stay long enough to put the chairs down and wash the coffee pots and lock up, because um, that's what my my impression of what a secretary does. Uh, I've stayed involved uh, because I love this program. Um, I was, um, we were um, this little boy and I were were getting along just fine, and uh, I've been working on a research grant and. And the research grant ran out we read a wrote a new one, and it wasn't picked up and uh, and I'd inherited a little money by this time and I decided to go back to school again and uh, and I went back and I went to law school um i'm sorry john uh and um uh, you know I never felt like I was enough, and the idea that you gave me the kind of courage um to take the kind of rest, that going back to law school and tell just knocks me out. Because uh, I spent most of my life giving things my almost, you know. Because if I held back just a little bit, then if I failed, I had a reason. Uh, I spent most of my life not doing things for fear I might fail or I might look foolish. And uh, and you gave me the courage. You told me it was okay to fail. You told me the only sin around here was not trying. And uh, And I was to get out there and live. And so I, uh, I applied to law school, and, and there was a fellow in, in town uh, who was, is now um, a judge, but at that time he was a practicing attorney in my community and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he wrote me a letter of recommendation, and I was off to law school. There were 125 students in my first year class, and 22 of us graduated. It was a night school, and it was tough. Now I want to tell you how I got through school. I got through school with the lessons that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I showed up. You told me you suit up and you show up. And that's what I did. Uh, I went, be- even when I was tired and didn't want to go, the same way I'd gone to meetings. I did what I was told. I followed directions. I did it the way they thought I should do it. I read those assignments, whether they were interesting or not, because um, that's what I'd learned here. I did it whether it seemed like a good idea or not. and. uh And I did the footwork, and I turned the results over to God. And those are the lessons I learned here. Now, in my class, to the best of my knowledge, in that law school, there were three members of Alcoholics Anonymous. We were all in the same class, naturally. God has a sense of humor. We didn't know each other until after we started school, and then we discovered each other because we were all sitting in the front row. We all had the same sponsor, I guess. I don't know. But uh but we supported one another and you know, we all went down and took the bar exam together. And in a year when they had the lowest pass rate they've ever had in the state of California, all three of us passed on the first try. And uh and that's really pretty amazing. But you know that is the product of this program. I was in law school, I was uh finishing my first year and I went to have lunch with my sponsor, and I had been single for some time, and I said to her, you know, Georgie It's entirely possible that God wants me to stay single for the rest of my life, and if that's the case, I accept it. It's all right. Um, I have a very good life and a very full life. Now, it has been my experience on this program that I can have anything I don't have to have. (laughs) I was secretary of a meeting, uh, my Saturday night meeting at that time, because I was always secretary of some meeting. Oh, it got to be a habit. And... uh, and I, uh, I got a call, and I got a call from a man who was, uh, he said, uh, that his, he and his wife had split up, and that she had some talks, uh, on the calendar, and she'd asked him if he would take them for her. And was it okay, if she was scheduled to speak at my meeting that week, and was it okay if he came up and spoke for, him, for her? And I, uh, I said that was just fine. Um, and he said, would you like to have dinner? Now, I'd always thought he was the sexiest man in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to tell you that if I had been married, I'd have found a way to get single by Saturday night. <laughs> but I was very cool. I said I'd like that very much. Uh, and then called and told all my girlfriends. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, he came up on Saturday night. We had dinner and, and went to the meeting. And, uh, and I let him court me for a year. And, uh, and then he asked me to marry him. And, uh, in September that'll be 12 years. Um and I love him more today than I did the day I married him. It's been very good. Now it hasn't always been easy. Uh, when we got married we both had custody of our sons. Mine was 9 and his was 14. And I was going to make us one happy family. Um, you should never take on a 14-year-old if you can help it unless you knew them when they were three. (laughs) See, the only reason you don't throw them away at 14 is that you remember how cute they were at three. (laughs) The only reason. Um, anyhow, uh, there's a wonderful line in the book that says, On the next occasion, we were more gracious or more demanding in order to get our own way. Now, with this child, I was alternately more gracious and more demanding, because I knew, I knew that if he would just do it my way, we would have a wonderful time together. That child grew up, went off to college, and joined Alcoholics Anonymous and has three years and still has not done it my way. But that little nine-year-old of mine came along, and he went off to high school, and uh, and I thought, if this child only understood how important it was to get good grades, he would do it my way. But, you know, I just didn't have the stamina with the second one. <laughs> For the most part, I turned him over to God and his teachers, and he's done just fine. Um, and he's really kind of an astonishing child to me. Um, I, I adore this child. I truly do. And um, he uh, he did something I didn't quite understand, though. Um he announced when he was in junior high school that a new high school had, had uh, opened in Los Angeles. It was a kind of magnet school. It was Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. And he wanted to be an actor. And, uh, and so he wanted to apply to the school. And I said, that was fine. But then he did something that I don't understand. He, he called the school and he got an application. And he filled it out. And then he went to school and he got letters of recommendation from his teachers. I mean, these are the sorts of things that I just had absolutely no concept about at that age. And then he prepared audition material and prepared to go down and allow them to reject him. <laughs> I don't understand that. Um, <laughs> He was raised by you, you know. He got the benefit of Alcoholics Anonymous. He wasn't afraid to take risks. He got into the school. Um, which is lovely, and it was wonderful, but I think the thing that knocked me out was that he was willing to go down and try. He was willing to take that kind of a risk and uh, And he went off to school and hes uh, and then off to a conservatory for two years and And last Tuesday, I, I took him out to Los Angeles International Airport and I put him on a plane for london and uh, and he's going to spend a year in london and it i It breaks my heart. Um, but I'm very proud of him and uh and he wouldn't have had a chance without you. You know, he just wouldn't have had a chance without you. Um, my husband and I have had a lot of fun together. Um, you know, he I always knew what I would like in life. I've always known in advance what I would like in life. Uh I always, you know, I, for example, I always knew that I would love sailing. If I ever had the opportunity, I knew I would just love sailing. And I got the opportunity. You know, and I just, I knew it was going to be wonderful. I get seasick. (laughs) And I tried. You know, I wanted to love it. I knew I was going to love it, and I wanted to love it, and I tried. Uh, And I get so sad. On the other hand, I also knew that I wouldn't like motorcycles. Um, The reason I I knew that is my mother told me. (laughs) She said they're noisy and they're dangerous. But when I when I met my husband, um he was riding a motorcycle. Uh he had a dirt bike. Took it out in the desert. And I wanted what he had and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it, <laughs> including getting on the back of his motorcycle. Uh now, I don't get a motorcycle of my own. But I do get to ride on the back of his. I'm a danger to myself and others so on you know um but, uh, but I ride on the back of his, and, and I've seen countryside that I would not have seen in any other way, uh, on the back of that motorcycle, and I've had a wonderful time. Um and in addition to this motorcycle, this man had gotten involved in this running nonsense that started about that time. It got very popular in Los Angeles. Uh, everybody was running. And, uh, and it seemed clear to me that I was gonna have to take an interest. It seemed silly, but, you know when you're in love um and i you know and i am not a spectator by nature and uh and so I decided that i would would give this thing a shot. I mean, how bad can it be um now, I want to tell you that I was a non athlete as a kid i mean I was a non athlete when I learned to walk, my family figured I'd teach athletically you know and they were right. Um but I figured how hard is running. You know, I mean it's so I went out and I bought myself a pair of running shoes. And then I clocked a 1 mile loop in my neighborhood. And then I waited until dark. And uh and then I went out and I and I shuffled. Um you know, I, I shuffled a few steps and stopped and caught my breath and shuffled a few steps and caught my breath and and I and I managed to to sort of make it around this 1 mile loop. And I thought, well, it can be done. So I went out the next night, and I tried it again. And uh, and I continued this until I would managed to make this entire one-mile loop without having to stop. And then that weekend, I signed up for a 10K race. <laughs> I just wanted to know I was a real alcoholic. Uh, now, I was still smoking three packs of cigarettes a day in those days, which made it harder. Um... But I did. I went out and I finished that 10k race. I thought I was going to die.
1: Um,
0: but I am a finisher. And uh now I I don't want you to misunderstand I'm not fast. When my arms move like this, I'm walking. When my arms move like this, I'm running. The speed doesn't change a great deal. Um I was, they have categories, you know, in, in these races, and, and uh, we went to this little tiny race out beyond where we live, and, and uh, I came in, I got a first place trophy in my age group. Now the catch was, the only person I actually beat on the chorus was this wheelchair contestant who got a flat. Uh, <laughs> but I was the only one in my category, and I got my first place trophy. I brought it home. I love it. Um. It makes me laugh. But it's okay. You know, I went to, I, I spoke at a meeting uh in my area, and someone came up to me afterwards. I was talking about not being very fast and sometimes being the last one coming in. And this woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, that's very nice, but I couldn't do that. And I wanted to say to her, it's okay, but it's a character defect. It's not a virtue. See, what I've learned here is that I don't have to be the best. There's a great line in the new, in the, the this year's running diary, um, and it says, "Anything worth doing is worth doing badly." Now, I know that's not how your mother told you, but I want to tell you that if I was limited in my life to doing only those things that I do well, I would have a very dull life. I don't have to be the best. I don't even have to be good. And I don't have to be the worst. You know, I can just go out there and participate today. That's one of the things that you've given me here. That's one of the freedoms that I've gotten here. We have a lot of fun together. And I believe that's how it's supposed to be in this program. We, We hiked in Switzerland. It was magical. It was really magical. We went river rafting. You know... Um, we we talked about doing a little river rafting. It sounded like fun, and uh, neither of us had ever done it. But we thought, you know, so we were going to sign up for a couple of days and see if we liked it. But then we discovered that if you signed up for ten days, you could go the length of Grand Canyon, and Colorado River, and you know, being an alcoholic, that's what we did. We signed up for this, and then and we got to Flagstaff, and there was this orientation, and we were in this huge room. It was a room this size, and it just filled with people because we were all going to break up into rafts the next day, but just a huge number of people, and and there were people smoking, and and my husband and I both are very sensitive to smoke, and we thought, geez, that's a little awkward being on a little tiny raft if we're with people who smoke, and that might not be very comfortable, and then somebody from the back of the room said, he's not taking any beer, can I take two cases, and we thought, "Oh, oh, this is a big mistake, maybe we ought to back out now. You know, you get on a raft, and people are smoking, and they're drinking, and it might be very awkward, but we... We decided to turn it over to God and get on the raft, and uh, and we got out on onto the river and we started to get the inter- introducing each other, and and uh, we had eleven Jehovah's Witnesses from Texas, <laughs> and, and two Mormons. <laughs> nobody drank, nobody smoked, and everybody was there to have a good time. Um, but nobody was there to have a better time than we were, you know. Um, we, you know, we immediately became the people that, that were going to do it all, because uh, that's just kind of how I feel about life, and, uh, and it's kind of the way we take life, and, and uh, we were out about two, three days, and, and the, our little guide stood up, and he said, well, we're going to pull into a um, water hole and, and tie up in a few minutes, and there's an optional hike. Um, those of you who want to stay behind, that's fine. There's a nice place to play in the water and, and lie in the sun, and, and said, I must tell you that this hike is very steep. And and there's some sheer drops, and it's going to be very hot. But it's well worth the trip. It's very beautiful at the top. Now, besides Don and Tonya, who's coming? You know, because... <laughs> you know, if it was available, we were there for it. Um, and, and and I think that's how it's supposed to be. I think we're supposed to participate. I think we're supposed to have a good time. I think that's what God had in mind. Um and you know and, and and things have been tough too. Uh about 2 years ago I, I came home from uh from work and uh and I interrupted a burglary. And uh, the guy was loaded on cocaine and, uh, and he smashed my face up. And uh it took took two plastic surgeries to put it back together. And from time to time I um uh, I would would um in that early period I would say why me? And the answer is why not? you know um these things happen and the truth is that that um that valuable things have come out of it i can't say that this is something i wanted to happen or something that i would choose um, but i've learned lessons and, I, and and good things have happened as a result and um you know good things happen to me on this program and, and i don't have to feel guilty about it and when tough things happen i um i I try not to whine too much and to remember that that's part of life too um you know it's a it's a funny thing i um I have a baby who's twenty years sober and and she's up in Juneau, Alaska this weekend speaking and uh and Rhonda and I have a couple of things in common a couple we have a number of things in common and and uh one of the things we have in common is neither of us likes to fly very much uh, we're both kind of nervous flyers you know. And uh, and the, another thing that we have in common is neither of us likes to speak very much. Um, but the third thing we have in common the most important thing is that uh, both of us want more than anything in this world to be sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we're willing to do whatever is necessary for that privilege. And it is a privilege. And it's been a privilege to be here and to share with you. Thank you very much.